Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We'll continue making our way through uh, the book of Proverbs, just considering uh, a little bit, of, a little chunk of wisdom uh, at a time. It's an important passage. Here, so often we, uh, particularly over the past year or two, we've examined those things that the Lord loves. We've done that series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're working our way through the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But here we find that there are things that the Lord hates as well. So we need to give attention to those things uh, that we might steer clear of these false paths and so walk the path of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Even if you have never read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I'm sure that most, if not all of us, are familiar with the broad contours of the story. It tells of a young scientist, rather enthusiastic, if a bit unorthodox in his experimentation, a scientist by the name of Victor Frankenstein, who attempts to create life by splicing together the best parts of the best human cadavers that he can find. And what he thinks is a project that will lead to great good, despite his success at making a sentient creature, his creation proves to be a giant monstrosity, an abomination that proves to be the young scientist's ultimate downfall. I think this is a fitting analogy for our proverb this evening. As Solomon paints for us a grotesque portrait of the man of sin par excellence. Just like Frankenstein's monster here is a composite creature. You see that here in these six, no, seven descriptors of eyes, a tongue, hands, heart, and feet, and yet each member proves to be more hideous than the first, and when assembled, it culminates in a human monstrosity that seeks the destruction of the community around him. Seven abominations, what one commentator calls the anti-beatitudes. We hear of the great blessings that the Lord pronounces in the Gospel of Matthew on particular characteristic traits and qualities. Here we see the things that the Lord hates. There's perhaps... I can think of no stronger word that the Lord uses in the Old Testament for the things He detests than that of an abomination. As we consider that, the things that He hates, and we examine our own lives and hearts, I think we will find that we perhaps look in some ways um, too similar, at least in parts, to the creature that is presented before us. Seven qualities that invoke God's wrath and displeasure. The fruit of the natural human heart given free reign to do as it pleases, as it revels in folly and in sin. Let's simply walk through each of these in uh, a moderate succession. 
First, we'll consider the matter of the haughty eyes. What do you think when the word haughty comes to mind? It's a word here that denotes connotes arrogance. We know the glance, we've seen it in others, and if we're honest, I think we've seen it in our own selves, looking back at us in the mirror. The eyes of the man who sins with the high hand. The man who knows full well right from wrong and in an act of open defiance thumbs one's nose at his creator. Here's the man who exalts himself. And really, I think that's the key here when Scripture speaks of the haughty man because in so many instances, the haughty man is contrasted with the humble and the afflicted. Here's the man who thinks he has accomplished all of his achievements by his own strength. So says the prophet Hosea. Here's the man who exalts himself, making himself, at least in his own puny estimation, equal with God either in grandeur or in authority. Such is the man of sin in Daniel 11, or even the wicked king of Isaiah 14. As I've said so often, the uh, contrasted here are uh, with the haughty or the humble. I think our attentions immediately are are, uh, uh, turned to the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's the man who, who thinks too well of himself. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like this, this sinner over here to the, next, to the right of me. Contrast that with the tax collector. He says, Lord, he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. He says, Lord, be, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see such a contrast at least two other times in the New Testament. James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5, where both say the exact same thing. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He is the one who will exalt you. Do not exalt yourself. The Lord casts down the proud, but He lifts up the humble. The Lord hates the haughty eyes, the man who toots his own horn, the man who boasts in his own accomplishments. This is something that Paul drives home over and over again in the New Testament in his writings. What is the Christian's boast? It is nothing but the cross of Christ. We have nothing to boast in when we truly consider our own accomplishments. Yet, for the natural man, he thinks he has much to boast about. Moving on, we see yet another abomination, that of the lying tongue. Uh, Here, I think we're reminded that there really is no such thing as a white lie. It's a phrase you might have heard on the school playground or even among office workers. But there is no such thing as an innocent Lie. What is a lie but the concealment of some form of hidden treachery against one's neighbor? Psalm 119, David speaks of those lies that are whispered about him in the dark as a form of persecution. I think too often, too many of us, when we think of persecution, we immediately think of uh, the Christians being you know, used as tiki torches during Nero's reign. But Scripture has a broader and deeper view of persecution. First Peter chapter 4, you know, there are believers who are getting made fun of because they're not getting drunk at the town keggers. It's a form of persecution to be socially ostracized. Here, the lying tongue as one bears false witness against the believer, it is a form of persecution and the Lord hates it. 
We need to remember the Lord is not indifferent towards our suffering when those lie about us, when those maliciously slander us. In his long suffering, in his patience, and in his right time, he will act either in justice or in mercy. But it does not mean that God is presently indifferent. We need to banish the thought. I think it's rather interesting when you look at uh, the language of bearing false witness in the Old Testament that this one sin forms, uh, presents, uh, uh, creates something of a domino effect that it seems to violate so many other commandments at the same time. Leviticus 19 says that to bear false witness profanes the name of the Lord. It takes his name in vain. The Psalms and the Proverbs speak of those false witnesses who speak lies in order to ruin their opponents and to seek the death of the righteous. Therefore, it is used uh, as a means. The ninth commandment is used as a means to violate the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. I'm reminded in particular of Jezebel's own treachery who plants false witnesses in court to bring false charges against Naboth. You remember the story, Naboth, who is a righteous man who loves his inheritance that the Lord has given him. A beautiful vineyard. And yet Jezebel wants it. And she's not able to entrap him in anything, so she plants two false witnesses, much like the false witnesses that are planted against our Lord and Savior at his trial. They accuse Naboth of blasphemy, and he is put to death so that Jezebel can unrighteously take what is hers so that she could steal his inheritance. Again, the most repeated commandment violation we find in the Psalms is that of the liar. Lord, deliver me from the slanderer. According to one Hebrew scholar, is the most repeated prayer that we find in the Psalms. It becomes almost a stock phrase. As David's enemies seek to put him to death, not only with sticks and stones, but with those whispers uttered in dark corners or even in the legal courts to try to legally take what belongs to the righteous. We live in a culture where lies are treated as no big deal, yet the prophets place the lying tongue on par with both adultery and sorcery. You read Jeremiah and Malachi, and the Lord puts those three together, adultery, sorcery, the lying tongue. These are the great abominations that his people have committed. And next we find not only the lying tongue, not only the haughty eyes, but now the bloody hands, those hands that seek to put the death, uh, the innocent to death. And, And thinking about this imagery here, I'm I myself am reminded of that scene from, from Macbeth. Those of you who are familiar with the story of Lady Macbeth who convinces her husband uh, to kill the king of Scotland and the rightful heirs to the throne so that he can lay claim to the throne for himself. And he does so, even though he is perhaps hesitant at first, his wife is the one who really pushes him to do so. And yet, once the deed is done, She is unable to shake the guilt of what she has put into action from her mind. And throughout the play, up until her demise, she is seen scrubbing her hands of the blood that she sees that is not even there. 
So deep is the guilt that it drives her crazy. Psalm 106 uses this phrase of the the, the hands that shed innocent blood. It's used to describe the guilt of those who pour out the blood of the innocent by sacrificing their own children to pagan deities. It speaks of the predatory behavior of those lying in wait to ambush the unsuspecting along the path. It speaks of those, according to Isaiah, whose highways themselves are desolation and destruction. You think of the crowds of Calvary. As Christ himself, the the innocent man of of innocent men. The most wretched, the most treacherous act in the whole history of the human race. And what did the crowd shout as they condemned this innocent man to have him put to death? They say, may his blood be on us and our children. It's a mob that is eager to shed innocent blood. Next, we see the picture of the scheming heart. I think it's so interesting that we see the bloodied hands and the scheming heart. What a contrast this abomination is with the words of Psalm 24. Who is it that can ascend God's holy hill? It's not the man with bloodied hands and a scheming heart. It's the man with clean hands and a pure heart. The implication here is that such a man is unfit to enter the holy place. They stand condemned, though in, with their own haughty gaze they may see themselves as equal with God, they are not even able to stand in his very presence. The word here for scheming is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the artisan who carves his own sculpture or who paints his own masterpiece. It speaks, it's used of the farmer who plows his own field. In other words, here is the man who has raised wickedness to an art form. This task consumes his life. It courses through his veins uh, with these fiendish plots and plans that he seeks to bring about the ruin of others. It flows from the heart and extends to every member of his body, be it the eyes, the hands, the feet, or even the tongue speaks here of the feet that hasten to evil. At the very first hint of carnage, they're out the door heading to partake in the disaster and the rioting that's transpiring in the next town or just down the street. What a contrast this is with the man who bears the heavenly armor of Ephesians 6, who dresses his feet with the gospel of peace rather than strife. Again, we're we're beginning to see a composite picture that's the exact opposite of what the people of God are called to be. What I think is most striking of this passage, perhaps, is the repetition of the liar in this sevenfold list. He's already listed the lying tongue once, and now this sixth abomination is the false witness. It's that third abomination reiterated, the lying tongue driving home how much God hates gossip and slander. You know, we live in a day, I think I mentioned it this morning in Sunday school, we live in a day where there, there are gossip columns in the, the papers that, and magazines that you can buy in the grocery store, such as the culture that we live in today. Uh, to use Jerry Bridges' language, uh, it's a respectable sin. It's something that's tolerated quite well in this present cultural context. 
but not in the eyes of the Lord. It's an abomination. Again, think how much the prayer, Lord, deliver me from the slanderer, is prayed so often in the Bible. For those of us who have ever been the recipient or the object of whispers and lies, think how much it hurts, how hard it is to live under uh, the shame that comes with false allegations. And yet, not even this is the most grotesque feature of this composite monster. Finally, the composite is brought into being somebody we might call Farmer Strife. It's as if assembling all the pieces of a Lego set together. For those of you who are familiar with it, with the 80s cartoons, it's kind of like Voltron. You've assembled all of these features together into one massive monster. Here is, as one commentator puts it, Derek Kidner, this is the crowning abomination. Where this individual's whole body in one monstrous movement works to a coordinated end to sow strife and to breed conflict, to promote contention, controversy, and bickering. This is the quintessential picture of the consummate fool. Remember what book we're dealing with. It's the book of wisdom. And here is what a life devoid of wisdom truly looks like. He might be scheming, but he is not wise. Like a master puppeteer, he plots and devises to pit one man against his brother, to pit one family against another, to set one nation at odds against another. Here is the man who delights in nothing but chaos and war. Here's a man who simply just loves to watch the world burn. A man who with perversity of heart continually devises evil, a man who simply wants to see the world at war for the sake of the very mayhem that it brings. Might I suggest to you this evening that what we have here is a glimpse of what life looks like apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Were it not for the grace of God, this is what the whole human race would be reduced to. We've already seen it before, at least in one moment in human history, right prior to the flood, where Moses, under inspiration of the Spirit, says this, that the thoughts of men's hearts were on evil continually, always, from their youth. Even from birth. How often do we take for granted how the Spirit continues to be at work in the earth even today? either in restraining sin by His common grace through the uh, establishment of righteous laws, which is the duty of the civil magistrate, or in subduing sin in our own hearts by the redeeming grace of our Savior that comes through the proclamation of the Gospel. These are good things. The Spirit continues to be at work in our lives. What a contrast these seven abominations are from the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 or the fruit of the Spirit's work in one's life as seen in Galatians 5. And if we were to take these seven descriptors and turn them on their head and, and, and present to us a mirror opposite, what is it that we would see? 
Rather than the haughty man, we would see the man who humbles himself. Rather than the lying man, we would see the man who speaks the truth in love. Here we would find the man with clean hands and a pure heart. Here we would have a, fit, a man whose feet are shod with the glad tidings of peace rather than the bad news of discord and strife. Once again, we find a man who speaks truth, bringing peace where there was once enmity. If this passage that we see here in Proverbs 6 presents to us the consummate picture of the man of sin, human folly at its very height, then its antithesis presents to us the consummate picture of the man of righteousness who is found in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Christ in whom is found all the treasures of unadulterated wisdom. I think we need to restore the book of Proverbs to its proper place, even as we read the Gospels. When the Gospels speak of the humility of Christ and the truthfulness of which He speaks and His gentleness it is demonstrating to us the path of wisdom. The very thing that Solomon is urging us to walk as opposed to the path that we see set before us here in verses 16 to 19. Here we consider Christ's humility, His speech, His innocence, His mission to effect peace. And here we recognize that He Himself is wisdom incarnate as He comes to bring peace by giving us His Spirit to make us look like Him in those virtues. I have a homework assignment for everyone this week. I'd like you to go home and contemplate this passage that we see here in Proverbs chapter 6. Hold it up as a mirror and assess your own character. But I say it not to shame you or to guilt you, Because I think if we gave an honest look at ourselves, we would recognize we're not perfect, but we're also not as fully decrepit as the picture that we see here. And I say that because I want to encourage you to those who have put their hope in Christ. Because sometimes it's easy to look at these these passages and browbeat people. Saying, look how, look how much you don't measure up. Rather, I'd, in recognizing, yes, of course, we don't measure up, I'd also like you to look at this and recognize how far you've come in light of the Spirit who's been at work at our hearts for months, weeks, years, perhaps even decades among us. Where you look and go, I, I recognize my younger self in some of these things. And I still perhaps see glimpses of it in the mirror every now and then, but not like it used to be. And I want you to do that to take heart, to recognize that the Spirit continues to be at work. That the Spirit continues to be at work in your heart. To give you courage and confidence that the good work He has begun, He will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ's return. That is His promise to you. The work of sanctification He began long ago. Whether you're a new believer, it was just a few weeks whether you've been a believer for decades, it's a work that the Spirit will not give up on. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. The Spirit will bring these things to completion. And, and, and He looks at you and you say, well, I feel, I feel like a half-baked cake. I feel as if I, I'm, I'm unfinished. And we go, yes, you are unfinished. But you will not remain unfinished. And I want you to consider how it is that we can use Proverbs to lead us on the path of wisdom, because this is the book that the Spirit has given us, that we might look 
like Christ more and begin to look more like Him in wisdom and the path that we walk. Christ who has become to us our righteousness, our sanctification, but He has also become for us, as Paul says, our wisdom. I want you to ask yourself, what would it look like to be made whole? In Oscar Wilde's The Picture of, or- of Dorian Gray, it tells the story of a man who lives a debauched lifestyle, but one day comes to find a portrait in his attic that shows him his true face, what he really looks like, and it leads to his utter demise. In the Gospel, we find something far better uh, than the bleak portrait that's given in Oscar Wilde's little novella. The glad tidings that are given to us is that Christ has come to give us His Spirit to save us from the coming wrath, because God's wrath will be poured out on these abominations that are committed by those who do not repent. And yet Christ comes to cleanse us, to shield us, to reforge us, and to refashion us, and to shape our hearts to mirror Him in all of His wisdom, in all of His splendor, and in all of His beauty. Here He comes to lead us on the path of wisdom, rather than allowing us to degenerate into further folly. Consider Christ, who is our wisdom. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we look at these things that You hate, we pray that as we examine our own hearts, we would do so honestly, but in doing so that we would not be driven to despair, but that we would turn to You in repentance and faith, that by Your Spirit You would give us through those ordinary means that You have granted to Your church uh, at Her disposal, the Word, the sacraments, and prayer, that You would use these uh, to help continue transforming us into the likeness of our precious Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.